just getting in here briefly before we start the episode to explain a couple little technical issues that we had here. So for whatever reason, during the recording, both me and Eric, every now and again, information would just get lost out of nowhere. So we'd be in the middle of a sentence and it would blank out for several seconds here or there. Sometimes we lose whole words or half a sentence. And on my end, I was able to re-record those lines or cut them, so you won't really hear anything like that from me. But of course, since Eric isn't here in my editing studio, I unfortunately had to leave a number of them in here. So every now and again, he'll be in the middle of saying something and it'll just awkwardly just cut out and then cut back in, like in the middle of another word or something like that. So so I just figured I'd, I'd explain what that is uh, up at the front. It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as your hosts discuss the 1966 film Persona. Yet again, talking about another Bergman film. This one, actually, when was uh, the Virgin Spring made? Was that in the? Was that fifty-five? Something like that. I will tell you in a moment. I want to say it was his movie right after Seventh Seal. Um, the first thing I'm seeing is actually 1960. Oh, 60. Oh, okay. Yeah, so six years later. Yeah, very, very different film. <laughs> You, you said you hadn't seen this one beforehand, right? Certainly not, but always been aware. Well, since I've heard of Bergman, always been aware of it. I didn't know about any of this stuff before I knew who Bergman was, and I didn't know who he was <laughs> prior to the Criterion box set release. Mm. Yeah, I always knew him from Virgin Spring, but there was a couple other titles that you'd always hear anytime his name come up came up. That was, of course, The Seventh Seal and then Persona. So this has always been one I've wanted to see. I had heard of Seven Seal prior to knowing who Bergman was, but I didn't know anything about it or who made it or or why it was famous. But I will admit I was aware of that prior to knowing who Bergman was. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about Persona is I never, like even though it was it would come up when, it, when people would refer to Bergman, for whatever reason in my mind, I always thought this was a Godard film. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would always be like, oh, yeah, Persona, that's Bergman. I, for whatever reason, I keep forgetting. And I never knew, really knew why. <laughs> and then watching this for the first time, it was kind of making me think of a French New Wave film. So maybe just any time French New Wave com- came up, for whatever reason, this kind of got thrown and went into the conversation. Yes. Even though it's not French. Right. But it does get grouped. It does get grouped in with the, with the French New Wave um, from the reading, the sparse reading I've done. In preparation for this conversation, it gets grouped in with those movies heavily, along with uh, Eight and a Half, 
Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I've never seen that one either. Definitely want to see that oh, soon. That I have seen, but that's that's for my taste. That's going a bit far in in the world of surrealism. Uh, that, that's going a little bit too deep for me. Eight and a half. Interesting. That makes me more curious, <laughs> but also concerned, especially after probably our discussion with this movie. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say right off the bat, watching this was a little bit. I'm not going to say a slog, but it was definitely dense. And it took some took some reflection. <laughs> and I didn't have that much time for reflection. I didn't get a chance to rewatch this like I did with The Virgin Spring. So my thoughts will probably be a little bit more rough than I had for that podcast. But You're 100% correct. I'm on the same page as you. I wanted to start this conversation in my head. I'd already thought about this. And I, I wanted to start this conversation by saying something like, whatever we could possibly say in the next two hours, we are not going to do this movie justice at all. I just want to start with that right up front. <laughs> yeah, I was even thinking, like, God, I hope Eric, like, watched the commentary or, or some of the extras. I mean, I watched the Paul Schrader uh, one, and I read a couple of reviews on, on IMDb, but... I got a little bit. Oh, okay, cool. Now, there were some things, once we got to the actual end of the movie, because I was trying to write notes as it went through, but I just kept being like, I don't even know what notes to write. Like, I'm I'm just so kind of not quite sure what to think here. But there was a couple things at the very end, which I felt kind of gave me a little bit of maybe some clues. But but I guess we'll see when we get there. But I guess for you, uh, do you have any initial thoughts that you want to say about the movie? Or This is one of those things where, because... I've been told this is so I've been told just like anyone would if they did any modicum of research before watching this movie that this is considered one of the greatest films ever <laughs> by anybody Bergman or otherwise apparently this is the second most written about movie in existence meaning that people have analyzed this wow. movie to death. Number one is Citizen Kane. Number two is Persona. <laughs> is the most written about film. Fascinating. I have learned that people have written not just single books analyzing this movie, people have written book series all dedicated to this one movie and breaking it down. That's why I'm saying we are not going to do it justice today. Yeah, a couple, a couple grains of rice is our podcast. <laughs> yeah, we are wholly underqualified. Um, I just, I just noticed the phallus flash across the screen uh, as I have it playing. Um, oh, it's, oh, you, you just noticed for, for the first time? No, I noticed a little bit earlier, but I didn't, but I didn't notice the very first time I was watching. Let's put it that way. Oh, okay. Um, but I did notice afterward. Yeah, and I'll say that that. That single shot made me immediately go, oh, David Fincher, he's seen this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think everyone's seen this. I mean, who's a, <laughs> a a professional filmmaker worth their salt? I think they've all seen this, to, to be <laughs> fair. Um, I, because, so, because I know the reputation, I went into the movie thinking, I'm un I know I'm underqualified. I'm not going to get it. This is what happens to me, or what happened to me, when I watched many of the Kubrick films for the first time, my first time, is 
there's some of them that I didn't quite grasp the first time. And and, and, and I'm, I'm like, that's okay. That's okay. And I did grasp some of this movie, but some of that was because I had read small things um, that helped me. Uh, that I just happened to see. Not because I was doing research, but just because I... I was reading about something else, and it mentioned something about Persona. So those things aided me um, along the way. Um, and even though I, I don't fully understand it all on my own, I had assistance. It's just this movie is part of why Bergman is on a whole other level than most filmmakers. This movie is, I guess, a prime example of that. Um and Seven Seals that way too, in a different way. Um, but it's unfortunate that like our friend Sean just watched Seven Seal one time, and and, and he, Sean, if it's too difficult, uh, then that's too much. That's too much trouble. It's, but for me, when I watch something like that, I considered it. A, a, I consider it a challenge when I watch a movie that I don't fully yeah. get, if it's done by someone of some prominence or, you know, you know, not just, I'm not watching like Goblin 2 trying to like unravel the mysteries of Goblin 2. I'm just saying like, <laughs> but as if it's something like this, um, uh, I'm going to have to rewatch it. And yes, we would have benefited if we had more time or if I had more time to marinate on it, watch it again, do more research on my own. Um, this this movie is something else. It's something else. Um, but now I will say, I think I mentioned to you, there was a reason why it was on the tip of my mind when you had asked mm-hmm. me about what maybe we should watch next. And I think you're going to want to ask that question now. Yeah, what what's on the tip of your mind? I'm very curious of this one. Or this is why it was on the tip of my mind at the time. Wait, wait, just beforehand. Is it because of Enemy? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off there. You got it. You got it. It is because. Of, <laughs> do you know why? Um, one is it because we see a tarantula, and two is it because we have the essence of the double. That's really the one. It's more the second second thing you said more than the first. The tarantula was a an added bonus. Um, yeah, that was, that was just more of a joke. But <laughs> for those following Kayla's po- podcast. But I also don't know how in what order these things release either. But in real time, that's fair. <laughs> in real time chronolo- chronology, the last thing we watched as a group or together was Enemy and, and discussed was Enemy. And while I was prepping for that discussion and I was reading things about Enemy, um, somebody mentioned how, you know. Th- this is probably partially Vietnamese enemy was partially Vietnamese like callback to persona or something. Um, or it was saying that Vietnamese was obviously inspired by persona, um, for enemy. Mm. So I had, I had read that, um, when we were working on enemy. So then when you asked like, you know, maybe which Bergman, that one, that that's why this one popped to the front of my mind was because I read that there was some connection between this an enemy and then when i saw the spider i thought i bet that's not random i bet i i bet that's something and from what i understand um i don't know what psychologist or who came up with this theory but apparently when you dream of a spider 
that's supposed to mean that you're either manipulating someone or someone is manipulating you. And that works perfect oh. for enemy. So I feel like there's something to that. That's interesting. I mean, I've never put much stock in the uh, interpretations of dreams, but but okay, in yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely interesting. Well, it, I don't... To me, like, interpretation of dreams doesn't matter. What matters is if we establish this is what it means and then artists use that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's, to me, what matters more. It's just one another little dig for me to uh, pop psychology, which I do digs to quite often. That being <laughs> said... I think there is a lot to be garnered from analyzing dreams or your own dreams. And even though it, that's not a science in any way, I do think there is some validity to that endeavor that you can, I think you can extract truths about yourself or your life or something um, through the non-science of analyzing your dreams. I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah. My digs are semi facetious, but I do like to get them in when I can, yeah. but but just for my little my little bit. So for Persona here, I'd had this on one of my surrealist lists for many years, and it was never one that I reached for just because I would look at the cover, I'd read the brief like little synopsis, which I don't even remember what it was, but whatever it was, I was never particularly interested. Mm -hmm. And I would see images of it, and I'd be like, it looks like it's like I, I love the pretty black and white, but doesn't look very visually exciting as a surrealist piece which is one of the reasons i come to surrealism so it probably would have taken me years to get to it just in in terms of me working my way through that list so i'm glad it came up here but yeah definitely uh it definitely a little more on the dense side than i usually am used to and and like i said it, how it feels like french new wave french new wave has never been a particular genre that i've or movement i should say that i've really delved into much i really only have one filmmaker that i've explored his filmography that works in that regard and i could definitely see some of the kind of fingerprints between the two kind of walking the same track but which one are you talking about or what are you, what are you talking about uh elaine ruby grillet oh, i have not heard of that no what movie was you know for or uh, he he's made uh, a bunch of them but i think one of his more famous ones is uh, like the immortal one or uh what was it called Oh, he's got a bunch of weird titles. Let me grab his cases sitting right next to me. A lot of his titles are strange, so... Yeah, the one I was thinking of was Successive Slidings of Pleasure, or uh, And Took the Dice, or Trans Europe Express. Yeah, I've seen at least the films of his that I've owned, and all of them are, yes, dense and weird, and in my opinion, not super decipherable. But again, I've only seen them all like once or twice a piece, so. I've just only seen um, uh, Breathless by Goddard. Uh, I saw it about a year ago or so. And I thought it was mm. brilliant. It's not dense, um, as you say. It's, I mean, it's pretty straightforward if you watch it. Mm, well, okay, there's layers to it if you really want to think about it. But I mean, on its surface, it's it's pretty straightforward as a, as a movie and a narrative. Um, I saw it was brilliant, and so I don't have much to base my understanding on French New Wave, since I've only really seen one movie in, in full, and the way I interpreted it was that, I, I keep referring to those BBS movies of the late 60s and early 70s, 
it seems like that BBS movement in the United States was like the American equivalent of what the French New Wave was in its time. Um, it was like a, a delayed French. It was like a, a delayed American New Wave um, uh, that happened. Uh, that was kind of like maybe directly, indirectly inspired by the French New Wave. And because um, when you watch if you've seen it or if anyone listening has seen it, that's a movie from, I don't know, 59 or something or 58. But it feels so much more modern than its release year. So much more modern. And and that's what's like to me really striking about that movie. Um and it was just nice. And it was like a similar tale of not exactly, but a little bit like a Bonnie and Clyde type story. Um, and it's funny because Bonnie and Clyde was the movie that sort of unofficially kicked off the new wave for American cinema in 68. Um, that's sort mm-hmm. of considered the first one that, that started that revolution. And it's funny because we were off air just talking about um, uh, Natural Born Killers. And that was that played a similar role in the 90s in a way. Not exactly because some of those some of the movies of that 90s movement predated um, um, Natural Born Killers. But, but it's still it's funny because it's another Bonnie and Clyde type story. And it's trying to push boundaries. Yeah. Oh, but I was going to say, it's also funny, because we were talking earlier about the the recent movies I've been watching on this big Criterion list that I made. Mm-hmm. I actually even made a little French New Wave section. <laughs> so it's it's a little bit too bad that I didn't watch those those three films, uh, The 400 Blows, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, and Breathless. All three of those are in a little row for me to watch, yeah. the French New Wave. 400 <laughs> Blows is what I wanted to watch immediately after Breathless. It's just for some reason I watched the first 10 minutes and I was like, I'm good. Uh, let me go watch Stranger Things again, or or uh, or uh, what do you call it, Cobra Kai? Because I, I had to like just change my mindset or something <laughs> for a second. But I'm, I'll get back to it though. Four hundred blows. Um, I will get back. To yeah, it. And, and I'm actually more more inspired after watching this to go and watch that little retrospective that I built. Hell yeah. Um, but I was going to say about uh, Elaine Ruby Gourlay, the thing that all the his movies that I've seen kind of have the connection to this movie is he's always playing with the fact that there's a level of artifice in the fact that you're watching a film. His movies are never watch this, sit, and kind of be immersed in the story. He's constantly breaking in and being like, don't forget you're watching a film. Don't forget there's a filmmaker behind it that's telling you this story. Yes. I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm talking about the source material. But the concept, that's perfect. That That's why I kept thinking of uh, French New Wave when I was watching this, because I kept thinking of that director. Now, I wouldn't call uh, Roby Grillet a great filmmaker. I think he's a lot more sloppy than, than this movie is. But definitely, I feel like that was some of the preparation that I had for this kind of very much whatever this is type of story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, um, no, but what you just said about the, the movie never letting you forget that a, a filmmaker made this. That's a big. That's a big theme in this movie. It's a big theme. It's, mm-hmm. it's 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 one of many themes of this. Man, how do you even unpack this movie? 
I yeah, I have no clue. <laughs> no, because I mean, because I I ha- I know inklings of 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 what makes it like what its DNA is made up of, but yet I still don't know how to tackle it because there's so much intertwined. Okay, let let me just try piece by piece. Like, how do you eat a Buick? You just like eat it like one spoonful at a time. Um, yeah, I was gonna say maybe we should start with just the extended opening here. Okay. Which um, very much kind of sets you in a, a mood. Okay, and what and what do you think that mood is? Yeah, I was gonna ask. Have you ever seen the film? And I don't even know how to pronounce this. Um, oh, it's it's the one by uh, Louis Bunel and Salvador Dali. Un Shen Andalou, I, I something like that, <laughs> something in that kind of vein. A very famous surrealist short film. I think the prevailing image that most people would know is. Um, like a shaving razor going across someone's eyeball. I believe I've seen clips of it, like in some special features for something that I was watching. But, but yeah, but I don't know much about it. But I've, I've seen clips, in like in some documentary or supplemental footage for something else. Yeah, very powerful little short film. And this opening of this movie reminded me of it quite a bit, except for the fact that we focus a lot on again the artifice of the fact that this is a film mm-hmm. like we start out seeing like all the little clips of the the film reels there and i i feel like the intent is solely to just distance the audience from the movie in a way that's part of the but, intent i believe but not sole intent yes that that's fair because <laughs> i was going to say yeah there's bits of it where i don't necessarily feel the uh feel what the intent is like when we see little kids hands kind of like fiddling around or, or something mm-hmm. it's like i'm not quite sure what that is and of course we get the penis which i thought was maybe a symbol for this is from a male gaze but i'm i'm really not sure because there's not a huge sexual element to the movie which i was more expecting well there is and there isn't depending on what level you want to analyze this movie on there is and there isn't a huge sexual element actually hmm interesting i mean come on dude there's a whole scene where there's like um you're not of the right generation but you know uh i can't remember what the section in penthouse magazine was called the letters to penthouse section where people would just pen like their own little (laughs) fan fiction like intense little sex stories and that was like a, a really important section of the penthouse magazine back in the day, back in, back when it, in its prime. And sounds, uh, sounds like the red shoe diaries that, uh, old HBO show. Maybe it wasn't HBO. Yeah. It was like the male version of that. And that was a really big thing in penthouse magazine. And there's this whole scene in this movie that is essentially that. Um, and you can't just skip over that. Yeah. It... Um, that's certainly an important moment, but I don't feel like there's a pervasive sexual element to it as, as you might expect from that, that penis being there. No, never, or not never, but not in the traditional way. But in like the subliminal abstract way, I think there's a lot of arguments to be made for that. But not in a straightforward way in the movie. And I was thinking about 1966 sneaking subliminal messages in there like that, that little image. Like, there's no expectation that people would be able to slow this down and watch it on, like, a VHS tape. You're 100% right. So, really, that, that is meant to be completely subliminal. 
So that's why I was wondering what the intent is. Is it intent to... I think it's partially a joke, but I think it's probably not that simple either. Yeah, I was thinking because it's such a female-focused story, there's almost no male characters that we see. Oh, hold on. To that thought. Because something you get from when you watch like a bunch of Bergman movies, even though a lot of his movies center or focus on female characters, probably maybe more so than male characters, but there's definitely ones that focus on male perspectives as well. But regardless, you see, Bergman operates like the way Woody does, Woody Allen does, even though they do their own thing, but they operate the same way, which is both of those writer as writers both of those guys are constantly up in their heads trying to sort out their own personal thoughts and feelings about a multitude of things like things about life things about politics things about history thing thing whatever these men are always deeply in thought and when they write a screenplay um what they tend to do is they tend to hash out something, an idea, a thought, a feeling, through their screenplay, through the characters in their screenplay, to the point that even if there's a man and a woman and a doctor and a priest character, let's just say, um, they all represent parts of the author's brain. So all the char- all the characters represent the writer's voice so even if the movie just centers on one main heroine or two females these are still these women these fictional women characters are still a filter for this man's ponderings aka igmar bergman so even though these are females talking about more feminine topics and ideas it's still at the end of the day Bergman's ideas and interpretations of a female's perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah, it doesn't. It actually, I think, fulfills my uh, interpretation of the penis even more. Because <laughs> this whole <laughs> this whole introduction here is kind of displaying the artifice of the film, and to give the the shot of the penis there as we're kind of counting down the reels is kind of a way of signaling, hey even though this is going to be a female film as you watch it, there's still very much a male perspective yes. behind the, the force of the film. You're absolutely right. I think we did it. I think we got that one third of a second uh, <laughs> of film. Uh, no, I think, we, I think, I think we got it or we got part of it. Um, I, I really think that that's, that's, that's hitting the mark to some degree. Yeah. And, and we were talking earlier, you were saying how the spider kind of symbolizes manipulation. I was still thinking, kind of stuck in enemy, thinking this that the spider some way was a kind of trap of sexuality. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe the spider here is, yeah, maybe more of a sign of just, again, showing that this is a, a vision from a director and that everything you're seeing is just a manipulation. Yes. None of it's real. So Yes. That, that, that's interesting. Hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Well, well, the reason I think you're right is not because I'm anointing you right. It's because this is, this has been reflected in the things that I, I tried to read before our discussion. 
Um, and and yeah, no, I, I think you're totally going down the right the right road, the right track um, in, in your line of reasoning. Yeah, now, now here's where the confusion kicks in okay. because we get the shot of the the lamb being what I thought initially was sacrificed. And then we see the kind of religious imagery of a nail being driven into a hand. Mm -hmm. And I assumed this movie was going to be, again, in the line of the Virgin Spring and spend a lot of time talking about religion. Mm -hmm. But we get almost none of it after this, so I'm a little lost already. <laughs> Any ideas? <laughs> I have a lot of ideas based on other things I've read adjacent to psychology and things like that and, and history and, and myths. Um, so you get the lamb and then right soon after, just as you said, you see like the nail going into the hand, which is, uh, obviously signaling like, like the crucifixion or the, um, and all that and Christ and everything and that's heavily implied. So when you put those things side by side, you think about the lamb of God, um, as they say in Catholicism. And, and what was the role of animals, the animal sacrifice? Do you know? I mean, like, in, in, in Judeo-Christian, like, history. So something that is known about, like, human sociology and, and, and um, archaeology, a common theme throughout the world with, like, historical cultures, no matter what continent you're on, there's a there's a common human thing about sacrifices and like sacrificing to the gods and and it's something that runs like in all cultures like in in, in south america central america um mesopotamia like it's just this weird universal thing that humans have like subconsciously um and what's the deal with you know you know how it works like we need to appease the gods, you know, we need to have a sacrifice, drop the virgin into the volcano, and maybe the gods will, you know, um, answer our prayers or whatever. Um, yeah, innocent blood. And so, so in ancient or in old school, like uh, Judaism and whatnot, it was a thing for them too. Like, it was a concept that they also believed in uh, from their earliest days. But what happened is they got, as they, as they modernized their religion over time is that you know they were like and, and that's what the whole christ thing is obviously like that's mm -hmm. the culmination of that idea of that we all have these sins and if you have one person who can like we, we can give up or sacrifice then somehow that'll take all our sins away uh symbolically um and it's weird too because there's the concept of the scapegoat uh and that's the same concept. And it's funny because it's a, it's a goat, right? Um, huh. And and what ancient uh, Hebrews figured out was, you know what? We don't necessarily have to kill a virgin and drop her in a volcano. What we can do is just use an animal as like a substitute for a human. So that's why when you look in the Old Testament and stuff, there's all this stuff about how often you're supposed to um, sacrifice like an animal or an ox or whatever um because they were like mm -hmm. yeah that, it's it's more symbolic than actually killing a human and sacrificing them um yeah they even talk about like crops and stuff too right so then when you get into like modern 
psychology. What some psychologists postulate is there's a reasoning, but there's a reasoning to why humans have this um, subconscious connection with sacrifice, which is to achieve anything in life, um, to accomplish something like your career or whatever you're trying to accomplish, um, become a, an amazing musician or whatever. The price of that is always a sacrifice of some kind, a personal sacrifice. Whether it's um, staying staying in the dorm in college and never going, sacrificing like your your free time to just focus on your studies, or whether sacrifice whatever that means, you know, there's there's always every achievement involves a sacrifice, um, and that's just the way the world works. And so some psychologists postulate that in order for you to have any type of change or growth, you have to symbolically sacrifice something yourself. And so I know this is a long road to get to, but back to the movie. <laughs> um, this person, or is it people or is it person? This person <laughs> is having like a little bit of an existential crisis in the movie, whoever you think the the protagonist is um and and they're trying to get through it and so seeing like a lamb image or a christ image lends me to believe that if you're going to fix your situation or your problem it's going to take some sort of sacrifice even if that's metaphorical um and i may be stretching but i think there's something to that that in order for this character to resolve their situation, they're going to have to work through some things, and it's not going to be something you want to do, but it's the only way you're going to get through this bad patch. I don't know, does any of this make sense? Or did I go too long around? <laughs> no, it, it totally makes sense. I just, the connective tissue of how it, the movie itself gets there is where it gets a little confused, because absolutely... Like you said, is it two people or one? I mean, I think, you know, one person and one of the elements, one of the sides of that person kind of has to be the one to get sacrificed. Yes, or you have to give up something. You have to give up something like, even if it has to do with like beliefs, because you're so sure about this or you're so sure about what's depressing you right now. You're so sure about what's... and. And for whoever you are and whatever problem you have, like in real life, people can't let go of their grief. It, it's almost like it's, well, it's a part of them. And, yeah. and to get rid of it, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And what I mean is you're going to have to sacrifice that part where you bitterly, bitterly hate your dad. I'm just saying, because that's a common one. Um, mm -hmm. And you may be so justified in your hatred or, or bitterness because of actual things that happened in the past or whatever. But you have to let certain things go. You just have to let it go. Um, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, obviously. Um, but but these characters, the, the two characters that are, you know, going back and forth with each other in a way, even though it's the same person. Again, it's a person warring with themselves in the movie. Yes. And in order to make any headway to to recovery somebody or maybe both have to give up 
some of what they can't give up about their stance or beliefs. Uh, does that make sense? It does. Okay, good. <laughs> but I, I just just to interrupt you again. So I've still been watching the uh, this intro very slowly. I've just been pausing and then pressing play again. And it, yeah, we get all these scenes of like dead people, and then we see this kid. Now, do you think in some way that this kid is meant to be the kid that comes up numerous times throughout the movie for our our lead character, or or what do you think this is supposed to be? Because <laughs> I wouldn't, I did not figure that out or have that idea on my own, but from my readings, that's what people believe. Oh, okay. And people believe there's also a resemblance, even though it's a blurred picture. Um, people believe that it resembles that kid at the beginning. Yes. That that's why I asked. Yes, because I thought that that, I mean, we didn't get a good look at it, but I was like, maybe it looks like that kid. And yes. And I guess because it's this opening, isn't really, in the world of the film. It's outside of the film. What's the kid supposed to represent? Looking at the screen of his mother, and like trying to looking at us. Where are we, the mother? It's... Again, these are not my ideas, but and I and I haven't read it enough to get this all down pack. But okay, so from my understanding, because I didn't want to say this yet because I wanted to hear more of what you were going to come up with, and that was interesting, but um. So, the way people interpret the beginning of the movie, uh, the opening six minutes or whatever it is, they think it plays two roles. On the one hand, they think if you break it down, it's a six-minute version of the entire movie. That's one part of it. Oh. It pretty much covers like the, the whole course of the movie in six minutes. But the other interpretation of it well, simultaneously, is that this movie is both about a person struggling with their internal struggles and it's simultaneously about movie making in general. And, and you've already said a bunch of you know, those ideas already, meaning that the magic of movies is that while you're watching that particular movie, if the director, producer, etc. have done their job correctly, they will make you connect to this story, these characters, and you will follow along on the ride of, of the story, even though it's all fake. It's all made up. Like, your brain is being tricked like you're in the Matrix. Like... None of this really happens. None of them, and I'm talking about all movies in general, not just Persona. None of this really happens. None of this is real. Your brain is literally getting tricked by frames per second. These aren't even moving pictures. Mm -hmm. They're still pictures, but they're moving so fast. It's manufactured reality to you. Um, and we've talked about some movies like this before, or some some of them I've discussed with you, some of them I've discussed with other people. But you know how there's those movies that are considered um what else we talked about one in the last two or three months a movie that is a movie but it's also a movie about filmmaking at the same time uh the prestige i think we talked about uh yeah yes you're right and another one also from nolan of course 
that I always think about is um, Inception. Mm. Have you heard Have you heard that postulated before? I mean, maybe not by me, by, but by someone else. Or are you familiar with that? Oh, I remember the, I remember the old sci-fi party line days. Yeah, talking about that film over and over. Right, but I'm not the only person who has that idea. Um, but like when when the when Leo DiCaprio is describing how you make a dream, how you have to like design the world and you have to make it like believable enough, but you, you got to do certain things to trick the audience, not the audience, but whoever's going to be in the dream. Um, you know, if, if all the people move at the same time, that'll give it away, you know, cause that'll seem like manufactured or fake. So just like little tricks and in all the promotional stuff for that movie, like each character was given like a name, like the architect and the whatever and the whatever and whatever. And all those names were like pseudonyms for like producer, cinematographer, writer, you know? Um, and it's like every, every one of those characters played a role in making the movie or the dream, so to speak. So inception amongst many other things like dreams it's also again it's a it's a critique or an essay on movie making or movie magic because again the director and producer everyone else in the crew and cast they design something completely fake but for that time that you're watching it your brain just goes along like yes i'm in this story this is a these are real characters with real stakes and i want to know how they get through it um anyway and yeah, you're right, the Prestige, that was the one that came up. And there's others, of course, out there. And apparently, people consider this the same thing. Um, they consider this Bergman trying to work out some of his own personal issues, along with making a movie about making movies. He's doing both at the same time, supposedly. And going back to the kid at the beginning, it has something to do... Um, so uh, I read this somewhere, um, that people consider like going to the movies as like watching real life through a window pane. Um, like the screen represents, you know, a window pane and it's like you're, you're, you're seeing what you can see through the window and that's what the, the director is giving you, right? To tell their story. And supposedly the boy at the beginning and the way it's all set up, Bergman's doing some, he's doing a, a play like how you do a play on words, he's doing a play on concept of that concept. He's he's like reversing it or something. He's making instead of you being on the outside looking through the window pane, he's making it like the kid is on the inside. Of he's 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 doing something. He's inverting it somehow. Well, yeah. Let, let me see if I can get my version of what I okay. thought it was from what you were saying. So this movie plays numerous times over the, the whole thing about how, you know, kind of the people themselves are mirrors the movie's a mirror in a way Yes, I thought maybe the kid on screen is supposed to be kind of the mirrored version of the people who can believe the fiction of a film Okay. and the way the kid kind of reaches for his mother reaches for kind of this kind of primal aspect of themselves is supposed to be kind of us reaching out and giving ourselves to the film that, that's that's just the bullshit that I've thought of, and that's why I was asking if we could supposed to connect. I don't know if that's really what he meant, but... I think it works. I think it works with everything else. 
I think it works with everything else because it has something to do. Again, I'm spitballing off some stuff I read. Um, it's something to do with the kid also, because again, it's multi-level. Uh, it, it's it's not just one right. thing, but it's also the kid trying to reconnect to his mother, but but not mm-hmm. having a true representation. So another way, another you could poetically interpret it is like if you lost your parent or you're separated from your parent at a young age but you get older and you you still have a natural longing for reconnecting to your parent and if you can imagine like if they're not there maybe you have trouble like remembering exactly what their face looks like you know what i mean maybe it's out of focus and 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 mm. you're seeing it again through a prism of your mind and we're just seeing a version of that as it being projected and being on like the inside of the screen or whatever. Um, but symbolically, I think it's like trying to imagine someone or something that you're trying to connect with, but just having like a facsimile that's the best thing, the next best thing you can come up with. I think it's some, some play on that as yeah. well. Yeah, I wish I was more educated on for film this time. But I could almost even see it as someone being like, this is the person in you who wishes for escapism, but films have lost their way and, you know, you're trying to reconnect. Maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm going off. I'm a little, I'm a little tipsy now, so. So, and then another part of the movie, like, like let's just dial it down on the, on the artsy-fartsyism for a second. Um, <laughs> sure. I only got to see a little bit of the special features, but as always, like with most Bergman, or all Bergman movies... He's heavily influenced by what's going on in his life at the moment. Um, and he had just been ill. He was working on a movie like the year prior to this or before he wrote this. He was working on a movie and he had picked up like a really bad lung infection. And it had him in the hospital for a while. And so a lot of the concepts and some of the images were inspired by his long hospital stay. And... And like the depression of, you know, not being able to, you know, not living, not living his regular life, being stuck in the hospital. Um, supposedly, the images of some of the dead bodies were based upon um, mm. some of the things he saw while he was in the hospital. Um, and then he was just dealing with a bunch of grief and depression and anxiety, like he always is, like so many great other artists. Uh, <laughs> and so again. That's what, that's what he does. He writes from personal life a lot. Um, it's All his movies are semi-autobiographical to different degrees. Um, and again, if you watch many Bergman movies, he's always talking about couples being going through different stages of a relationship, meaning like the initial meeting, the passionate phase, and then where, it, where it, you know, the... Um, the newness wears wears away, and then the people separate, whether it's amicable or not. Um, hmm. He's constantly talking about um, what do you call it, uh, or what do you want to call it? Um, I was gonna say the opposite of monogamy, but not polygamy. But oh, polyamory, something like that, something like polyamory. He he's constantly referencing that in so many of his movies. Again, because it's semi-autobiographical. 
if you know anything about him, he is famous for for being a coxman. <laughs> He's famous for that. And even though he has like the loves of his life, um, it's like specific ones, he can he can still never settle down ever. Uh, and he's and and he's known to have had like deep loving relationships that were also the open type as well. Um, you know where there where there was an understanding that yeah we still see other people but we still have our bond as well. So everyone, well, if you read anything about his life, you know that's that's a, such a big part of him. And it's it's constantly reflected in many characters in many of his movies, over and over. Oh, interesting. That's what I'm saying. There's certain directors, like Nolan. If you if you watch all his movies, there's always an there's always an aspect of daddy issues, always in every mm-hmm. Nolan movie. And so, you know, there's got to be something semi autobiographical about that. He has daddy issues. We get it. He's constantly referencing that. And so, yeah, Bergman is constantly referencing not being able to settle down with one woman, constantly referencing the newness of a new relationship, constantly referencing not wanting to have children, like abortion and and stuff like that comes up over and over and over again. Um, well, it's, it's perfect you're saying all this because I was going to, I've been trying to, trying to hold on to this thought so I don't forget. I was trying to finish a thought there, but I just couldn't find the track of it until I finished watching this one scene. So I was saying how the kid, maybe he's like someone who's like trying to attach himself again to being that person who could fall into the fiction of telling a story. And then after that, we cut to the scene of the, the actress trying to play uh, Electra. But for whatever reason, the lines won't come to her. She freezes up and all she can do is just want to laugh but won't be able to it's almost like she can't take this story seriously or can't take like the art of telling stories seriously mm-hmm. do you know if he was having some issues with his career at the time or uh, yes you're right see you're good man you're good because you're going into this stuff blind and then <laughs> and then like you're you're told yes you're right and I learned this again in the, in the little bit of the special features I got to get into because not long prior to this movie, um, Bergman had just done his first color movie, um, which was like a big deal because he was already Bergman, obviously, at this time. And it was like, ooh, Bergman's going to do his first color film. Um, and it was like a big deal. And and he was hoping it was going to be like a big... And it was like actually a, a big flop. It was a failure. It was like widely, widely panned and just like... And... That was one issue that happened to him because he was like, oh my gosh. Because, you know, he had a reputation already and he obviously, like any creator, wants to deliver like their next best thing. So that was like a bitter pill to swallow that his first color movie was not well received. But also... Oh, and... Uh, huh? Uh, which which movie was it? I don't know. I have to look it up because I don't think it's in the Criterion set. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. Oh, okay. But... Um, mm-hmm. And then also, in 1963, I think, um, he was made, like, the president of, like, the Swedish whatever film institute or whatever. I don't know what it is, but something like that. And he and, and for, three, for three years, he held that position. 
and apparently it was like a huge job like dealing with all that and it like took over like his life at the time but he, i mean but he did not enjoy it you know it was like it was like it was like having a job an extra job besides making movies and apparently that had worn him out as well so it's a combination of him having all his extra responsibilities combined with his movie that didn't do well and so he was just kind of like oh fuck um and then this was the movie that he made like after that along with what i mentioned about him being sick and stuff so mm. so he was like going back to black and white back to his comfort zone oh. and then dealing with those issues of like i failed and i couldn't do it like why couldn't i do it because i'm i'm me you know and all that stuff yeah and so we get a a sick mute protagonist and a nurse trying to nurse her back mm-hmm. to health. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But again, if you follow the history of his works, that is how he works. Like he's constantly pulling from like his current life situation or whatever. And again, he always has male characters hooking up with female characters, and there's usually like a twenty year difference or something like that. Again, mirroring his own life constantly. Oh, that, it's interesting you say that because I remember you mentioned that on our previous Bergman episode. But I assumed that you meant that the men were 20 years difference. But in, in this case, it's, I don't know about 20 years, but they definitely describe the, the orgy being with young boys. You're right in that. I kind of almost, I almost got the impression that they were talking about potentially early puberty or potentially prepubescent boys. I, The way she described it, it sounded like they were like weirdly young, so... I was a little like, huh? What's this all about? <laughs> Possible, and he might have, and he who, and you know, when someone like him, who's dense. I mean, I mean, dense when you get into like their personal psychology. Um, mm-hmm. Who knows? Because he could. That's the thing about I think a lot of artists like Bergman is like, they have some weird thoughts in their head, and then they'll reference it very blatantly in their own, in their their artistic works and even though it can be so blatant like some people just like pass right over it you know what i mean and in that situation i don't know but perhaps perhaps he just did a gender swap and in that situation he's the guy and maybe he he's had some I, i'm not, i'm spitballing here i'm not saying this is true but that maybe he's had like a fancy or some weird situations with some potentially underage girls, and this is his way of saying that in a in one of his films while partially masking it at the same time by flipping the genders and you know what I'm saying. And I'm not saying it's an actual thing, but that is what Bergman does though with with other concepts and, and truths about himself. But the reason I was yes, and it, it almost always is the much older man and. Don't tell me it wasn't striking a little bit when the nurses. Wait, no, no, no. It was uh, not the nurse. It was the um, the actress's the actress. husband. Supposedly appears. Um, people debate if if he <laughs> yes. ever actually appeared or not. But um, but didn't it strike you like the obvious age difference? Yeah, he looked like he was like maybe like in his late fifties or mid fifties, and he was like blind. Yes. And Bergman does that all the time. No, not necessarily blind. But the blind is symbolic for not even recognizing 
his lover. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering why they made him blind. I'm like, what? What is this? What is this here for? <laughs> it's that. Oh, you can sleep with this other woman, and you don't even realize it's not me. Like you can't tell the difference. You know, that was a super curious scene. Like throughout the whole movie, I kept getting the inkling. I was like, is this? Is this doing a piece where they're one in the same? But it really wasn't clear for a good amount of the movie. But by the time we got to that bit, I, I thought that's when they were really making it clear because yeah, she was like admitting basically that that she was that character. But yes, something about the framing of it was just leaving me mixed as to what I'm supposed to be getting from it. Like was because I was never clear which one we're supposed to see as the surface character, and which one's supposed to be like the mask character that she plays to the world like is the nurse supposed to be both or is she the one that's hidden i i i, I kept getting tripping up over that i think i think first of all i have to ask why did you specifically say it that way who's the mask character well one um i think it was uh either in the paul schrader or maybe one of those imdb things they mentioned um that the movie means mask in uh some language I, I can't remember what language but but also the actress characters like so kind of flat and her expressions are so blank um, oh uh, go ahead persona is a latin word uh, that means that means mask that's why i thought it was curious that you use that specific word because again i was like did you just pull that shit out of your ass again um <laughs> No, but I think you're so on the money, and I think you're so on the money, and I think it's it's similar to the conversation in Kill Bill Volume Two, um, where the original question you you posed, which is, who is the real person? Is Superman the real person, or is Clark Kent the real person, or is the truth mm. that he's really both people? That's that's interesting. Well, I feel like the the artifice the artifice of this movie kind of says that one of them is not really the real person. But I th well, I was gonna say based on what we, what you were just saying um, before you, I I wanted to know about the mask part. I think okay, first of all, I think this is totally one person. There is no two yes. separate people, and you can interpret it that way if you want and. Some other writer said that it totally works if you want to do it as two separate people. But it's a, it's a different movie, though, <laughs> if you look at it that way, which is fine. But no, I think the intention is this is one person. And I think the question you bring up is very uh, germane because I think it's very possible that the writer, because it's, he's talking about himself, I think, um, I think the writer is not sure who is the real person hmm. and who is the mask. That's the way I take it. That's interesting. Um, because, again, if I think about my own personal life, I have similar existential issues when I think about that about myself. Because I have a little bit of a multi-personality thing that I give off. Um, but what? But but I can narrow it down to two specifically, even though I, I do shades of other personalities as well. But you you could narrow me down to two different halves if you wanted to. Um, 
Like if I had a, a secret camera crew that followed me 24-7 and you went back and looked at the footage, you would see there's two noticeably very different people that I am at the same time uh, in different places and situations. And I've often thought about it myself. I always thought that the, my, the more private version of me is the real me. And the person I am in public is the mask. I've thought that since I was pretty young. But the older I get, the more I'm starting to reevaluate it. And, and I'm like, is that really true? Like, because I always used to tell people when I was younger, close friends, like, that the person who was me more in public was more like the fake me. Um, but like I said, I, the older I get, the more I think, why is that the fake me? I mean, why is the more personal one the real me? Like, aren't they both me? Like, you know, and I think, again, that's, I think maybe I'm, I'm maybe I'm painting myself too much onto Bergman, but I don't think I am. Uh, I think he probably had the same thoughts himself. Uh, yeah. And uh, just to go back to the title uh, quickly, you said it was a, an Italian uh, word or Latin. Latin. Yeah, and I kept wondering uh, when I was watching it, why is a movie called Persona? And, uh, yeah, that's no, that's interesting. Yeah, that works. Damn it. And I forgot what the original title was. Oh, the original title, I remember it now. So the original title for his screenplay was Cinematography. And somebody, and somebody he works with was like, hell no, you are not going to call this movie Cinematography. No, you are not. So he tried a bunch of different titles another one was like opus 28 or another one was like film movie <laughs> or something uh and eventually yeah, he settled on persona that's that's what's all about the facade of that that that, that, that that's, that's fitting if he was originally going to call it just cinematography that's kind of a weird title but <laughs> i guess it means a similar thing it's yeah it's basically yeah just a, a mask but that's in, that's interesting it's crazy. All this stuff is crazy. Um, but that's the thing. See, if you're not a movie buff, you're like a casual... And I hate to make it sound like a pejorative every time I say that in a, in a discussion. But I'm just saying, we yeah. understand people just want to just get in and out, so to speak. Um, they're, they're not trying to, like, you know, rack their brain over something. Um, and so... Because... I mean, maybe you're that kind of person who just rather prefer a straightforward movie and you just think, man, these guys are bullshitting right now. Meaning myself and Caleb. Like, we're just bullshitting. <laughs> like, somebody told us this guy's famous and so we're justifying it by overanalyzing <laughs> his movie. But in the kindest way, I say F you if that's what you really think. Because the great filmmakers or the great artists, whether they're poets or um, painters or whatever, sculptors, they fucking, they think this shit out in advance. They work it out. They, they It's not fucking accidental and we're just like pulling shit out of our ass to justify it. That's not the way it works. Just for anyone who is thinking from that point of view, because this is what I kept thinking when I was watching this. Did you enjoy this movie? Just the experience of sitting down and watching it from beginning to end. Again, I have to 
qualify my answer to that question, which is, this is, again, the approach I took when I was going through the Kubrick catalog for my first time, which is, there were certain ones that I watched, and I thought, okay, that was interesting, but I know I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the full picture. And to me, personally, part of my joy of loving movies is is pulling it apart and working for it. Um, it's mm. the whole concept about like pistachio nuts and, and sunflower seeds. There's something about having to break the shell yourself before you get the little prize inside versus when you buy the mm-hmm. jars that just come with the seeds by themselves. Like, they're good when you buy them, like, pre-shelled, but it's, it's for some weird reason, not as satisfying. And that's how I feel about movies, and especially the great movies. It is fun for me to, like, I gotta crack this egg, I gotta crack this egg. Um, and I remember, like, Eyes Wide Shut was a movie like that for me, where I just, I kept hitting my head against the wall over and over, like... And some people say, yeah, it's, that's because you're just trying to justify that it's a good movie. Like, you're you're bending over backwards to justify it. But I don't believe that. I mean, if it's coming from Kubrick, I don't believe that. Like, I'm like, no, there is more fucking here. There is more fucking here. And it took me a lot of rewatching and a lot of reading articles. And I believe, yes, th- there is, in fact, a hell of a lot going there. But you have to work for it. Unless you're just some kind of fucking genius. And it just made sense to you the first time. But you have to work for it. And 2001, when I saw it 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, I thought I understood it enough at at that time. My God, do I understand so much more about that movie just from what I've learned in the last three years. Like, so much more that I had no concept of 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, yeah. So, so no. Did I... No, upon first viewing, was I, like, fucking blown away by this? No. But I... I it's a humble brag. But I just go, no, it's because I'm not good enough. But I know if I keep working at it, I'll figure it out. And, and that's... To me, that I consider that quote-unquote fun. Um, yeah, and I'll just I'll just say because you mentioned Sean earlier. Sean can be like, you know, if, if I watch something like this and I didn't enjoy it the first time, I don't have an interest in going back and figuring out what was right. going on right. with it. And I think that's totally valid. Yes, me personally, mm-hmm. watching this the first time, I, I love the opening. I think the opening's incredible, and I really enjoyed it up until the point when we when we the the camera like or the film I should say burned. And I feel like from then on, it started to get kind of strained, and I was struggling to stay engaged, even though I was enjoying kind of the symbolism. Wait, do you mean when it burned at like the six minute mark? No, when we come back around, like maybe like halfway through the picture. Oh, okay. Okay, later. Yes. Okay. 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 Yeah, the, the camera burns. We get a little surrealist sequence again. And then from then on, it just started to feel protracted to me, and I felt disengaged. Okay. Okay. But when the end came, I was I was into it again, and I was like, okay, I feel like I'm getting more of what the director's saying. But I could totally see someone watching this as a first-time viewing and being like, it had some cool moments, but I was bored, and, you know, maybe it was saying something that I didn't get, but I just don't care to go back because I was just not engaged. I think that's totally fair, but 
But me personally, I, I, I do get a lot in, in breaking down, especially the really symbolic moments. Like, I just, I love surrealist imagery, so. And then... I can always find something to dig into with that kind of stuff. What tripped me out about the, um, that little break you were just talking about, where, where the where the film cracks mm. and then burns, um, at that moment, because it caught me by surprise, let me tell you. Uh, me too. But also, there was a similar image to that during the opening six minutes. Um, oh, well, I haven't said what it is yet, the, the similar image. But what freaked me out about it was I had told you offline previously how um, <laughs> I was getting all into the the latest Bo Berman special on Netflix. And um, for those who don't know, that special was all shot and framed and edited all by himself and there's a lot of interesting camera angles and shots and weird edit cuts and a whole bunch of stuff in that thing and there's something he does in it that freaks me out in one of his particular songs that he does in his special and he does this thing where he he's singing something that already sounds weirdly moody and uncomfortable and then he says something like don't be scared look in my eyes and then all of a sudden he looks at you like at like like he's looking in the in the camera breaking the fourth wall he's looking right at you and he does it in such a way that it, it's very unsettling um and he does it so well in his special and that's exactly what happened when the when the film broke um it cracked and she did the exact bo berman move where then all of a sudden she looked at you directly and broke the fourth wall and that freaked me out. Um, and again, mm. it was all by design because when the when the film breaks, it reminds you this is not real, this is fake, this is all manufactured. And especially, again, the, the cherry on top is when she looks right at you. And I was like, oh shit! <laughs> because you're in the movie and then all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck is happening? Because <laughs> you, get, you get jostled out of it for a second. Um... It's like getting pulled out of the Matrix for a hot second and realize you have no eyebrows. Yeah, and that's a weird point in the movie, too, because that's not super long after we discover that orgy scene that the nurse starts breaking down as a character and becoming something that doesn't really make sense anymore. Like, she's becoming super emotional and she, like, leaves that glass out there to try to, like, sabotage, I guess, herself. And <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I'm glad, well, you just said that because I was going to say we could do this all day. Like, we could seriously do a podcast and call it Persona. And in each episode, <laughs> we're just going to break down two minutes of the movie. And then that'll be one episode. Mm -hmm. And then we'll break down like the next two minutes. I, 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 I know people have done this for like Lord of the Rings and stuff. And I think it's fascinating. Oh, man. Oh, I know people have done it for Lord of the Rings, like the Star Wars saga. Well, where each episode only covers one minute or five minute increments of the movie or the saga. And I think that's a fun experiment, to be honest. But anyway, um, one day. Um, so we could do this on Persona and break down every couple minutes. And I'm not saying we have to right now, but it's like two parts in particular where I was thinking we could just go on for days. Um, one was... That I was going to say, what the fuck was up with the glass? Um, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because, like, again, these two people are one person. 
Is this like one half of your ego trying to fuck with the other half of your ego or what the fuck mm-hmm. does that mean? And I'm saying we could talk for days just about that. And another one is, I think it happens after the break in the film. I'm not sure. But there's a part later where um, I think it's the nurse is going off in a soliloquy. Oh my God. Was she speaking to her the husband off camera? But it's a part where she plays the whole scene of the soliloquy and then it mm. repeats the whole thing over again. And it's almost the same, yep. but it's a little bit different. What the fuck did that mean? Yeah, that's talking about um, someone telling you there's this one moment where someone told you like, oh, you're a great actress and you're really charming, but you don't have like this motherly quality. And then describing how she wants to get pregnant almost just to prove to herself that she can be a mother, but she ends up sabotaging herself because she hates being pregnant. She thinks it's thinks it's repulsive. She despises her baby and the baby loves her, but she just wishes that she, it would die and she tried to abort it. It's a super long scene and then yeah, it just resets. And that especially really made me think of Roby um, or Aline Roby Grelay. He does something very similar where, where scenes will just repeat and you have no idea why. Constant repetition. That really feels like something just straight out of uh, French New Wave. But any thoughts? Because when it started repeating itself, I thought, oh, like she's going to play it a different way or, you know, mm-hmm. like she's going to say the same words, but it's going to come across differently because it's going to be delivered differently. And while it is different, it's still very the same. So what is that? I don't know. Do you have any, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't worked on this yet. I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? <laughs> yeah, the scene watched over me. I had no clue what it means. Um, just spitballing. The first time we see the reaction of kind of the, kind of the mask character, I would think, which is the actress, and she just takes it. We see her kind of kind of hurt by it kind of trying to deny it but then eventually kind of having to accept it and then we see it from the other point of view the nurse perspective and she's just harsh and cruel and completely matter of fact like it's not hitting her emotionally and i'm not maybe i'll quickly fast forward to that scene right now so i can try to see how it ends but i i hear some seeds of truth in what you're saying i still don't know how it all coalesces but everything you've said so far makes sense to me. Me neither. <laughs> well, another thing, and I'm not trying to overwhelm you <laughs> with analyzation, but I, I just mentioned two scenes real quickly, and now there's a third one that I, I'm still pondering as well, which is, so at one point, uh, the actress writes a note that she wants delivered to the doctor, and when mm. the nurse is going to go deliver the mail or drop it off or whatever because the the note is not sealed or anything and so she just goes ahead and reads it and it seems pretty fair and truthful what the actress wrote but it incenses the nurse like she's she hates what she read um it pisses her off and and because like like who are you to analyze me and this and that but but i was like but why did she take it so harshly um to the point that she like wanted to hit her and and all that stuff like why 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 did it incense her so much well let's not forget 
because the whole thing that it sensed her was telling her this personal story about how she had this orgy. Right. But before she even told the story of the orgy, she says, oh, um, what was the name of the guy she liked? He had like two names. Right. I, I know I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember. Yeah, she says, oh, you know, I was always faithful to him. And then immediately switches into telling this story about this orgy. So it's this complete contradiction. So I think it was kind of the the rage was facing the fact that here's this image I pr present and then I tell you this personal fact or I admit to myself this personal fact and then it gets revealed and kind of shoved in my face and proven that I'm a liar and so she starts going to beat up herself in a way right through mask version but again I, I yeah a, lo a lot of this stuff I was yeah quite perplexed by the really straightforward symbolic stuff with the opening I could kind of wrap my That's head funny. around but some of these more extreme kind of like just regular sequences. That's funny because that's the kind of stuff that annoys quote unquote normies is like, what the fuck is all this bullshit at the beginning? Like just get to the movie already. Yeah. Symbolic imagery for me, it just clicks easy, but yeah, a lot of this later stuff just does. Yeah. It leaves me very baffled. <laughs> and I don't, I never understand how these cosmic coincidences work. I th there's another term for it. I don't know what it is, but, um, offhand but it, it's also struck me a little bit because just like five days ago i was at work and a co-worker was just randomly on the internet and he was looking up something in the news and he saw the still image of uh the um the monk or whatever uh lighting himself on fire mm. like self um, um, was it immolation or whatever but um yeah the guy who found the image at work um like he doesn't know anything about it like the context or the historical and he just found the image and he was like i was like what are you looking at that for you know he's like oh i don't know it just came up and he was like and he was like this is crazy right like this guy lit himself on fire i was like oh i know i said this is actually like a very famous um, I said it's not even just a still image. I, I was like, there's actually film footage yeah. of this. He had no idea. And he didn't know what country this was. He didn't know what the situation was. He just saw the still image. And I just think it was so weird because it's not like I have a conversation about that very often, if at all. <laughs> and then five <laughs> days later, I'm watching this movie and then there it is. I don't know how that works. Uh, <laughs> like those weird cosmic coincidences. Uh, it is funny. <laughs> I actually wrote in my notes, is this a snuff film during that oh, scene? Boy. Kind of a stupid joke, but <laughs> I never like seeing the the image of that yeah, that self immolation. It's very disturbing. Oh, it's terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. Very, very disturbing. It is fucking terrifying to pull that shit out of your ass. I mean, to put that in your movie, like you like you're you're like throwing the gauntlet down. Um, when you put something like that. I also wrote my notes. Is this what Bergman thinks therapy is? <laughs> Self-immolation? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, metaphorically. Um, also, other random things that we'll never get to the bond of today. So, she has, you know, like the picture of her son. that she tears up and it's put back together later. Um, but then also there's this part and I was, I guess I was a little bit checked out or I was eating my supper 
rapidly while I was watching the movie, so I wasn't paying full attention at this part, which is um, where we see these images of like a kid. Where's that kid? Um, it, it's like a refugee or something. You know what I'm talking about? Oh man, no, I I don't. Do you remember there was a bunch of images that were flashing onto the screen? Oh, and the kids all have their arms. It's a, right. it's a picture. Yeah, and it's then and there's like troops there, like holding them all hostage or something. Yes, yes. And I read about it in some. I can't. This is a specific event. It's something. I think it's Warsaw. Um, it's a specific mm. thing. Um, and whatever I was reading was implying that that she was thinking about her son and envisioning her son, but the way it appears in the movie is these images from the situation of Warsaw. Um, and so she was like seeing her kid as one of those. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> like I said, we're not, we're not going to crack this whole nut today. It's impossible because we haven't, we haven't spent enough yeah, time I... with this material to like really break it down. I remember watching that scene and just being like, I have no clue what this means. Is this, is her, does she feel like she's the kid? I, I was just completely bullshitting. Like, I had no clue. <laughs> like, this person held hostage. Somehow it represents her kid, but I don't know what, what, yeah, what the deeper meaning is. I mean, maybe this whole movie is her in a way being held hostage by herself. She's this, her real self is contained. By this kind of facade, this actress, this person who plays other people, but herself is kind of buried. Now, that just sounds like, a, and I don't mean this again as an insult or, or to dismiss it, but <laughs> I'll take it. That's a, that's <laughs> that's a very implied, like almost kind of an obvious type of takeaway. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, it's just, yeah, one would assume that that plays into this of being like a held hostage by yourself because it's another, like a random thought is kind of coalescing now in real time but because of some of the images i saw on screen just now but i was i was vaguely thinking of while i was watching the movie i was vaguely thinking of like a misery type situation um which by the way i only watched that movie once and i don't know much about it i don't really care that much for most stephen king things uh, i'm just saying i'm not an aficionado he does have some things I like, but I'm not like a huge fan or anything. Um, but misery, if anyone's familiar with that concept of that story, some of this seemed like a like a misery situation. Except again, you're both parts. So I picture it like a misery, like you got injured in this car accident, and you think at first, all right, someone's here to rescue me. But your rescuer is also prolonging your torment. And that's a perfect metaphor for someone getting over either a major physical injury or a major quote unquote mental injury. Because that's what people do to themselves is they're, they've, they've just faced a trauma, physical or mental or both. And they're trying to save themselves and get over it. but their internal savior is also sabotaging them at the same time and prolonging the hurt. And that's another very obvious, but true metaphor. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fair. 
There's definitely a, a big section of this movie where I feel like I was checked out, like maybe the last half an hour. And so I feel like on a second viewing, maybe some of that stuff would work more, but I definitely just started to be like, am I, I, I don't know what I started to be. It just, it start, it stopped engaging me necessarily if, at a certain point. I me, I, it's so. my fault. I was pressed for time. Uh, I had other shit to do. I was not watching under ideal conditions, and I hate when I do that, especially when it's for something that's so notable, apparently. Um, it's, it's the worst. Yeah, actually, because you're saying that, I forgot. I forgot that I took a break shortly after the when the film split. I had to go have my own dinner. So maybe that was why I felt less engaged for the last half an hour or so, because I did go away to go eat dinner first. Or watch it. For the normies out there, it's like you're trying to show somebody Star Wars for the very first time, and they're like fucking on their phone, and they're like, like <laughs> cutting, they're like cutting their fingernails. And you're like, are you fucking serious, bitch? Like I'm trying to get you to watch fucking Star Wars for the first time. Like, what the fuck is your problem? And I feel like that's basically what I was doing, uh, unintentionally, but to this movie. Yeah, there's. <laughs> There's always something to be said about the theatrical experience, you know. I mean, no, no distractions. You're just yes. forced to contend with the film. Hundred percent, dude. We could do a drinking game on this movie, on just because mirrors is a big thing, and reflections. Mm. We could do a drinking game on just every time there is some type of mirror image or implied mirror mirror image. Fuck, we'll be so drunk, like so quick. Um, because I've just been noticing some of it as I've been watching in silent. Because uh, there's so many, there's obvious ones, but there's less obvious ones as well, of just duality and mirror imaging. It's oh my god, this movie's rife with it. Yeah, and you saying that kind of reminded me of something I was going to mention. I, I have it currently paused because I watched that scene where they kind of switch between. You know, we talked about the repetition between the. Uh, talking about the kid i noticed there was a scene where they put their hands on top of each other mm-hmm. and it reminded me earlier of when they were comparing hands and then it made me think again of when we were talking about the intro we see that kid's mm-hmm. hands doing all those things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, i wonder what they're trying to say with that i mean that's a clear repetition but i don't quite see what the uh i don't know but the repetition is even bigger than that because apparently just like tarantino has this thing with feet in his movies uh, Bergman has a thing with hands. Oh, and you, you don't quite know what the uh, reason is behind it or what it could mean? Off the top of my head, no, but it's it's a thing, though, reoccurring in many of his movies uh, of focusing on hands and stuff like that. Yeah, I also think it's curious, during that sequence, they're wearing the exact same outfit as they're uh, repeating that scene against each other. Yes, and again, I'd have to go back and there's times when they're wearing the same color and there's times when they're deliberately wearing opposite colors, black and white. And again, if you know anything about any graded artist, nothing is accidental. Everything is purposeful. So that's like a whole other thing to try to dissect on its own. Oh, I did, I did want to ask. So at the very end, there's a bit that confuses me. I'll go there right now. So we see that they're both preparing to leave. The actress prepares her suitcase. We see um, the nurse kind of just cleaning things up, you know, doing what a nurse would do, collecting all, like, the the laundry and things. 
and then suddenly the nurse is the one that takes the the suitcase and leaves so and it's not even the same suitcase that the actress was packing which i thought was odd and then we get a flash of the filmmakers making the film and then she jumps on a bus and then leaves and i was like okay now i i i'm sure this means something that i'm just completely missing but <laughs> i was curious if you had any thoughts because i felt like that moment was really kind of a one of those kind of keys for the movie but i, I could be wrong but i just saw that scene right now uh before you mentioned it because uh, in real time it got to the end of the movie um but i know the part where you see the crew uh, from reading somebody else's critique that has something to do with yet again reminding you that this is a movie and that this is not real um and it's even uh it's almost, even the electric scene almost like intentionally like putting the boom mic in frame or something like just so you know this is all manufactured uh, so the... it's interesting that we see Electra the statue mm-hmm. even before we see her. So again, uh, yeah, very baffling that that section. I it really frustrated me when I watched it earlier because I was like, I, I I know I'm missing this, but it's right there and somehow I'm missing it. So <laughs> it was making me kind of choked. But <laughs> hold on, I'm I'm watching some of it right now and trying to suss something else out of this. <laughs> I'm watching sure. it right now. <laughs> Because um, I'm, I'm trying to think, I can't put my finger on it. This because okay, hold on, let me watch this sequence right here. Oh yeah, and then we cut to the kid touching this the frame again. Mm-hmm. That's oh yeah. Because again, I was so disengaged for that last little bit, and then the symbolism of that last sequence really made me just perk up in my seat, and I'm like, oh no, what am I missing? Like this is so visually poignant, but I'm just not connecting the dots. So it was really bugging me. <laughs> I'm still watching and contemplating. Um, I'm trying to think because just the concept of the leaving of the island, it's done so much in other movies. And for some reason, there's one or two other examples in other movies where that happens that are on the tip of my brain. I just can't extract them um, of movies that finish that way. That... Um, that finish with the we've we've just dealt with whatever we dealt with whether whether drama or melodrama or whatever and we're done like it's 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 resolved and now the end of this and and leaving the island or leaving the resort or leaving the the place that was lent to them and and now we move on like it's, it's such a god damn it i can't think of what those other movies are on the tip of my brain that end just like that um but I'm trying, I'm trying to come up with something on, on the spot. Uh like it imp- like so there's some implication that the nurse side of the persona is the one that has prevailed. Um what does that mean? I'm not sure. I have to unpack that. Um it seems like the mask has been put back as a mask and the, the mask seeming to be like the actress um, persona is just that. It seems like it's put back in its place as not real, that the nurse persona is the more real one. Um, 
And one of the other interesting images, I didn't figure this out on my own. I saw it in the special features, but like the very, the very first shot we see in the movie and then the very last shot is kind of the same thing, which is it's those two elements coming together to produce the light. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yep. Yeah, I didn't know what those were, but... Uh, yeah, they're carbon or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But they're the two elements coming together that produce the light for the bulb. And that's very deliberate. Again, because this is apparently a movie about making movies. Um, because, again, this is all fake. Um, and a movie itself, I mean a physical movie, like on a movie reel... Um, it contains an entire story, an entire whatever, but without the actual light, it's it's nothing. It doesn't it, it doesn't exist. It's in darkness, and and so that's the symbolic like element that brings it all to life. And again, it's just a reminder mm. that this is all fake. Um, that it's it's a construction. Uh, it, it's manufactured. Um, it doesn't actually exist in reality. Um, so there's another sim- that that's the symbol at the very start and end of the th- of the whole thing. Yeah, and, and just out of curiosity, because this is something that frustrates me when I watch the Elaine Rubik Relay films, is I never understand what the point of that is when he's making his films, except just as like a wink to the audience and kind of a like don't look at this as a regular structure look at it as what i'm trying to present but this movie is much more of a kind of a psychological drama so i wonder what do you think the intent is with that except to maybe signal like this is what the director's thinking but that seems so vague well again i'm i'm too heavily influenced because i've just been i'm i've been watching so much gd bo berman stuff and and analyzation of his stuff I've been watching so much on on YouTube lately that I'm I'm completely polluted by that, um, because I think it's something that geniuses share, uh, art artful geniuses share, regardless of their time or medium. Uh, I mean, time is when they're active, um, right? like their eras. I mean, um, I because I think all these geniuses. They keep hinting at the same thing. They just do it their own way, and and if you watch multiple Berman specials or his art, his music, he's constantly saying like, on the one hand, I'm trying to sell this character who I'm presenting on stage. Like I want you to believe that that this is how I really feel, and these are my personal struggles. And I, I want you to understand that this is real. But then at the same time, he'll make references where, like, but remember, this is all fake. Like, I wrote this in advance. Like, this is not actually who I really am. Um, separate me from the performer, from the artist. And Boberman is constantly doing that. And I feel like. And again, maybe it's because I'm so polluted from watching all that stuff recently. But I think that's what's going on here. That because people probably watch Bergman movies, like I've been saying, and go, "Oh, I get it. This is his demons that he's expressing. 
this is all about him and he's just representing it in these made up characters and on the one hand that is true but then at the other hand when, when he does these bits you're talking about he's also by breaking the fourth wall and all this other stuff he's also saying but this is make-believe and and it leaves you as, as an audience member unsure where the line is the dividing line between what's actually real and genuine and what it's just fake it's just fake you know because you go oh so it's implied that bergman has an issue with underage hookups but then it's like haha just kidding this is fake like i'm trying to entertain you you know and it's like uh yeah, i guess so. <laughs> it's like wait a second a level of a level of crisis of identity that that's yeah that's interesting to I was wondering what the the point of pointing out the artifice was, but I guess if it's just to tell, like this is me expressing my demons on film. I guess that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, and just because you mentioned, just because you mentioned the bit about the underage kids bit. Yeah, I thought that scene was quite. Um, I would describe as alarming, <laughs> just in the fact that it like came very all of a sudden. The characters seemed to have a dramatic dramatic change from what she was previously and the story that she told i thought was very startling for the time period with the kids and the very descriptive uh sexual encounter i was like oh wow this is very challenging oh hell yeah oh 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 that's something that's something to talk about for a second because for some reason i misread things before i started watching the movie i think it's because another movie i considered was through a glass darkly and that movie's from 1961 and i must have jumbled it around because as i was watching this movie i thought it was 1961 when it was produced and i kept thinking my god this does not seem like something from 1961 for many reasons including the look of it um and everything and i was like god damn this movie looks modern for 61 but even though it is actually 66 and i realized that not long before we started recording and i was like oh shit i screwed it up but even though it is 66 um there's something about this movie that it looks incredibly modern or, or more modern than even 66 um like this movie like if you didn't know this could have this this could have been done in 1976 in black and white it like, and of course it helps that they're in an island location for the most part, um, because you don't see like mm. buildings and and cars and things that would yeah, normally cars. date a movie. Yeah. Um, and like the house they're staying at looks incredible. Did you notice the architecture looks incredibly modern? Like, it does not at all look like it. Like typical buildings of the '60s that you would see in an American in an American movie, it, it it really does not look like that at all. It looks like a home that could have been built in the last ten years structurally. Like some of the windows and some of the 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 woodwork on the exterior of the building, it looks incredibly modern, not 1960s. Um, their clothing and whatnot, it's it's. Period-wise, it's semi-ambiguous. 
It could be anything from, like it said, mm-hmm. the 60s to the late 70s. It's it's not necessarily tight. And same thing with the hairstyles. And then, like, the typewriter. Again, you can't tell that typewriter from the 60s, the 70s, the early 80s. Like, this movie looks incredibly, incredibly modern. Um, it it's, it's, I don't know, it's surreal to me. Oh, wow, that sounds so stupid. Like that sentence I just said, but, <laughs> but, um, but there's something about that. And that's something that I think happens a lot in European or international film, um, compared to when you watch American film, because American mainstream film, especially, um, and even indie in a way, mm. um, American indie film, people seem to be like, <laughs> it's like they're using the same playbook. Um, uh, American filmmakers or like if you think that movies if you imagine movies were made out of a, like a Lego set or an Erector set it's like if you're watching an American movie from 65 they're all using the same set uh, play set to design their movie or if you're watching a movie from the late 70s that's American so even though it's different movie makers with different visions they're still using the same set play set um, so, so that, that, that also dates things. Um, but with this, it, it doesn't have any of those telltale markers. And I, I mean, did you know, like the, the cinematography and it has something to do also with the criterion, like, you know, masterfully, uh, um, uh, remastering stuff, but you notice there's like such a weird timeless quality about it. Oh, it's yeah, it's incredibly crisp, and I think it helps that it has so little music. Music is another big dater for me. I feel like yes, and and all of um, all of Bergman's movies are pretty much low budget affairs, like like all of them virtually, like they'd be all considered micro budget by American standards, and and it's something not just with Bergman, but again with other European, just like the French New Wave stuff, like um. If this movie of this budget was produced by um, an American crew, even if they're like you know independent, whatever, in '66, I guarantee you, it would have a look akin to like sitcoms of the '60s. Like, do you know what I mean? And I don't mean like it's like on a stage like a sitcom, but I mean there's just this look that would be this is 1966. If it was produced in Southern California, like there would just be a look to it, and this looks nothing like any production would look like in Hollywood in 1966. Absolutely nothing in any way, shape, or form. Um. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Like, and I, that's something I notice a lot in Bergman movies, and just certain European films in general. Like, again, those French... That movie, Breathless, just seems so much more modern than the year that it was released. It's funny. I, as you were speaking, I kept thinking of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I looked it up because I was like, that, that's a movie that feels like it could be this, but the clothes and some of the like vehicles date it. And it was actually put out the same year, 66. That's kind of funny that I... Kept thinking of that, but 
But yeah, no, definitely that's... I feel like it's a European thing. It, they just don't date as easily. Maybe they weren't as obnoxious with throwing in kind of pop culture references, which I feel like a lot of American films kind of strive to do for whatever reason. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons. But again, yeah, this weird isolated quality. I feel like one of the few things that does trigger is just kind of the beauty standards of the time. Like the one who plays the actress who's supposed to be like so pretty. I feel like she feels like a product of the 60s and something that you wouldn't see too much outside of it. Wait, what? Wait. Just in terms of like a, a great beauty. Wait, explain again, because I listened to what you just said and I did not track. <laughs> explain that again. Uh, the actress. Mm -hmm. We see her in, in um, the nurse character talks about how she's just great beauty. Mm -hmm. I feel like that level of beauty standard is more of like an element of the 60s. I don't feel like that look is particularly something that's carried on much beyond it in terms of like uh, something that you would see as like a leading lady kind of thing. So you're saying Liv Ullman, who's the actress who plays the actress in the movie, you're saying she has a look that feels like it's grounded in the 60s? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I feel like there was a number of stars in the 60s that just casting directors didn't look for that particular kind of look anymore after it. 50s too had a similar thing. I feel like all the eras basically have their kind of. No, I agree with that uh, with American Hollywood movies for sure. 100 million percent, I agree with that. Um, but I disagree as, as it pertains to this particular movie um, or Liv Ullman in general. Uh, because I think she has a weirdly timeless attractiveness akin to someone like um in modern times like an amy adams type or uh mm. what's her name um gosh she's in so many movies the other actress i'm trying to think of and yet i can't pull one out <laughs> um oh geez i gotta look up uh let's see she features heavy in uh don juan is that what that movie was called? Don Juan DeMarco? Not that one. Uh, the more recent movie was Scarlett Johansson. And uh, I think oh, it was called Don John. Oh my god, is that what it was called? Um, Don John. Um, oh, are you thinking of the guy from uh, The Dark Knight Rides? Julianne oh, Moore. No, Julia, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore and Amy Adams are modern examples to me of these actresses who just have this timeless look. Um, and you can look at like 20 years of either of their careers and it's just like, they don't age and they just like somehow fit whether the movie was in 2002 or the movie was 2012 or 2020. Like they just have this weird, like every girl, I, I guess in a way Sandra Bullock used to have that too um in a way uh but Liv Ullman I think she has some kind of beauty I can't describe and I'm influenced by seeing her in multiple Bergman movies but um and I, the only reason I disagree with being able to peg her down to a casting choice of a particular era is because I've discussed this with Sean offline which is when I started watching more Swedish movies 
um, Swedish actresses just have this certain kind of Nordic look, uh, female Nordic look, that it's like I've talked about how I didn't realize Israeli actresses were Israeli actresses at first, and then as soon as I figured it out, all of a sudden I could I started to see them and recognize them in movies. Same thing happened to me with Swedish actresses. Um, after I started watching more Bergman movies, I started watching contemporary modern films, and then I started wondering, wait, is she Swedish? And then I would look it up and go, damn it, I knew it. I knew it. And so now a lot of the Swedish vixens throughout movie history have like a unique, similar look regardless of decade that I see now. And do you know who my latest example is of she's so Swedish, like she fits this mold perfectly? Um, Is it uh, Nomi Rapace? No. Is she Swedish? I don't think she's Swedish. She might. Uh, what is she? Because I thought that uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Maybe that's. I, I thought that was Swedish. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Oh, I mean, it might be like Norwegian. I know their neighbors, but still, it's not the same thing. Oh, you're right. She is Swedish, but that's not the look I'm. I'm. I'm talking or thinking of. Because she has an atypical look, in, in, in my opinion. No, no, no. My example is I don't know. Uh, I don't know her name, but I read Rebecca Ferguson. Do you know who that is? Oh yes. Was she in the recent Godzilla vs Kong? <laughs> was she? No, I don't think so. Or I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But she was in a very significant movie that came out in the last couple months. Oh, oh yes, Dune. That's yes. right. Different actress I was thinking of. Yes. I think I was thinking of Rebecca Hall. <laughs> and so, similar to Gal Gadot years ago, I've told that story to some of you offline, but um, for Rebecca Ferguson, I would see her in some movies and I would be like, there's something about this actress. I don't know what it is about her that's drawing me in, but I don't know what it is. Um... And once I realized she was Swedish, that's what it was. Um, and she has this weird, timeless Swedish quality, attractiveness to me um, that Liv Ullman and, and some other Swedish actresses I feel like do as well. So, so, so it's difficult for me to separate all that. And then, like Woody Allen, uh, you know, Igmar Berman is famous for being romantically involved with his muses and stuff, you know, while working with them. Mm. Uh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, yes. So that's the thing. So Liv Ullman is perhaps one of his most used muses throughout his career, um, like reused and, and used. Um, and so often when the characters are talking about, in any of his movies, when the characters are talking about their relationship issues or you have kids or we don't have kids or we don't love our children or we're not fond of children even though we have children it's all often autobiographically like loose it's 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 bergman talking about his relationship with all with Ullman all the time oh they had a child together they lived on on his island for years together um until they f- fell out of their relationship so to speak 
But then again, even though they separated eventually, they still, you know, remained lifelong friends and all that business. And again, like I said, like, even though he was with her for many years, he was also with, uh, with many other women as well. And she knew about it, you know? There you go. And, you know? <laughs> and when she was discussing... I can't remember if it was the orgy scene or some other scene in the movie. I was left wondering... Is that, like, a story Liv Ullman could tell, like, truthfully from her own perspective? It made me wonder... I, I know this sounds like salacious or something, or gratuitous. But it made me think that the real-life Bergman and Ullman have been involved in, like, swinger-type situations. But I don't know. But, it, you know, it's heavily implied. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, it was the 60s, but I don't know how it was in uh, Sweden, so I, I can't really comment. <laughs> Different cultures, I suppose. But You would think even more, you would think even more liberal and progressive, you would think, mm-hmm. there at the time versus, like, the United States or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know too much about Sweden. I almost in, almost don't know anything at all. Really, so. <laughs> I, I learned about it. Well, a lot of it was from the Bergman stuff, and then of, of course you know their history is as as Vikings and being a Nordic people. Um, yeah, I guess I guess you probably don't know this, but my last name Holmquist is actually Swedish. I have a, a big Swedish side of my family that I don't know anything about. So <laughs> I I'm heavily influenced by Bergman movies, Midsummer. And like Viking related things, and somehow that makes up my base base of knowledge. Um, but you know, you know all that stuff. I mean, the the, the commonly known stuff, like they're the people of the north. You know, they were like the invaders of England historically. Obviously, they're the inspiration for the North people and Lord of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. Um, you know the. Yeah, I always used to say uh, when people would talk about Christopher Columbus discovering America, I'd be like, "Hey, my ancestors, the uh, the Vikings, were there long before him." So fuck him. <laughs> Mainly in jest, but <laughs> oh yeah, oh uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, but I, I I'm not sure if I have much more to say about this film. I don't know if you want to jump to final thoughts because we're kind of spiraling off on semi-related topic. I just think this is the kind of thing that I'll obviously have to revisit on my own. Who knows? Hmm. I've never been one to do like or be involved in many retrospective podcasts like where we go back and talk about something from before again. But this is probably this is probably the kind of thing that deserves something like that. Um like I said it's considered like in Bergman's like top three or four works or top five maybe because he has so many notable ones it's considered like in his upper echelon of best works ever um like this we haven't done it justice i i need to unpack it more it's gonna be fun um and yeah i was kind of not worried but i wondered what it was gonna be like to hit this movie out of the collection because just looking at still images, it's like the, it seems like the most artsy fartsy of all his movies in the set. Um, mm. Of course, the image—I didn't even know it was a boy putting his hand up to a, a woman's face or potentially his mother's face. 
But you know, that's that's the cover of the whole set. Um, is yeah. that iconic image? And so I didn't know what to expect from this. Like I almost thought this was going to be like some kind of weird beatnik thing, um, uh, <laughs> just based off of still images. And it's funny how, like many other Bergman movies, you may watch eventually. It simultaneously feels so different from all his other works, and yet at the same time, oh yeah, this is Bergman. It, it's simultaneously so Bergman and so different at the same time. It's really weird. Oh, in- oh, interesting. So, because you've seen more than me, none of the other ones feel anything like this, or are you saying? They do and they don't simultaneously. It's like a weird quantum issue. Uh, oh, cool. Because... So I kind of wondered if if maybe more of his films feel like this as compared to The Virgin Spring. Just being that those are the only two ex- exposure that I've had. Let me think. I would say, if I had to choose, I would say they're more like this. But not really. Because uh, like his, his movies mm. from the 50s and prior, or 40s and 50s, that are quote-unquote more traditional dramas um they feel more straightforward even though they have dense dialogue to unpack and situations to unpack and situ yeah but they but but they're presented more straightforward like like a traditional movie um uh oh you know what i mean so would you say that this one feels more like it's trying to maybe capture the flavor of french new wave like this is him entering, like, falling more along with that vein than, like, his older stuff? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I am saying oh, that, okay. even though I didn't realize. But yes, that is what I'm saying. Yes. He's deliberately... Another way I like to think about Bergman's career, and sometimes Kubrick, too. I mean, not their career, but their filmography. It To me, it's very easy to explain or to compare to like the trajectory of like the Beatles and their music and, and their albums. Uh, you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? Just like kind of the riding the wave of what's kind of not necessarily popular, but what could be popular. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with the, 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 the Beatles catalog, but I'm extremely familiar. Um, and so <laughs> I liked them when I was a teenager, but so, yeah their initial music that made it mainstream i mean because they had stuff prior but we're not going to talk about that but when they broke out as the beatles so that started at the very end of 62 in england and then in 63 and all their songs in 62 63 were either like covers of existing rock and roll music or stuff that was very sound alike to establish rock and roll music and they were just really good at it. Um, and then they started in 64, 65, doing the same thing, but but making it theirs. Like this is, now this is our version of that kind of music you're kind of familiar with. And then as they get into 66 and towards the end, they feel like they're really starting to, push the envelope like a lot more like ooh something's happening something's happening and then 67 bammo like they go to another 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 echelon of existence <laughs> and then it's like holy shit um and 
And you can also compare their trajectory of music, let's just be honest, with the types of drugs they were doing at the time. That definitely plays into the timeline. Mm. But I still think it's a very apt comparison <laughs> to someone like Kubrick and, and to some degree Bergman. It's more complicated when you adapt it. But with Kubrick, it makes perfect sense because his very first movies seem very standard. If you didn't know that it was Kubrick, you might not realize it, like with his very first movies. Um, but then he starts making more interesting, introspective stuff. But there's still, quote-unquote, traditional movies the way you understand them, even though they become more dense and interesting. Um, and then he has a you know a fun time with Doctor Strangelove, and yeah, okay, that's okay. He's pushing the envelope now, but it's still yeah we get some satire. It's still a regular movie. And then boom, the the boom happens like with 2001 and now you're just like what the fuck just happened like we just had a quantum leap from like the previous movie to this and then you follow it up with um clockwork orange and like what the fuck like whatever seemed like the traditional mm-hmm. filmmaker is gone this is like someone who's on the whole another fucking level and yeah, he's become like an alien yes. himself. <laughs> yes, and that's kind of how Berg. You can trace that in Bergman, his very earliest movies. If you didn't say they were Bergman, you wouldn't know, uh, you know. And then he gets more dense, but it's still in the traditional model. And then he just goes boom. But I'm not sure what his boom point is because I haven't seen everything, you know. So I don't know if his boom point mm-hmm. is Seventh Seal, maybe. Um, but it's something between Seventh Seal and Persona is where he completely like transcends to the next level. Uh, and then like the Beatles, they had their boom, and then they it, they they were just all over the place after that. Like they just did whatever they wanted. Uh-huh. I mean, they did low key, they did intense, yeah. they were just like non genre specific. They were just everywhere. And then that's kind of like Bergman, after he goes boom as like an artiste then he just does all kinds of different shit. And that's kind of what Kubrick did too. Because he was just all over the place from Shining to Metal Jacket to Eyes Wide Shut to, um, what's his name? Linda Barry. Uh, he's just, I can just do whatever I want now. <laughs> Linda Barry. Barry Lyndon. <laughs> yeah, the, he, the Ikea sponsored uh, film, Linda Barry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, uh, did we do our final thoughts for this one yet? I mean, maybe you gave yours. You sort of like put it out there, and I sort of started talking about it, and then I kind of like lost my way. Um, this is hard to rate because, I mean, I know, yeah, I don't know, I know I don't have to, but I still I like to talk about it <laughs> uh, about the rating process. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Which is, I'm tentatively going to give it a four, even though part of that four. It's imp- it's implicit that I still don't fully understand this movie. Like I'm barely at twenty five percent comprehension at this point uh, of really understanding this movie. So I'm just giving it a four. And and the more I revisit it, I know the number is probably just going to go up from there because I know me. Um, uh, it's just I don't know because. When me and Sean were talking about uh, Seventh Seal, 
because you know he started watching he was like oh my god i don't get this i'm 10 15 minutes in i don't know what the heck i'm watching i'm not engaged in any way and then he forced himself to mm. get through the rest even though he was so out of it he did not give it his due diligence he just had to get through it he didn't really have anything good to say you know he said you know i'm sure this makes sense to somebody but it, you know it's over my head whatever um and so I was like curious. So I started watching it after he told me that, and I watched 15 minutes myself. And I was like, "Fuck, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what where we're going or what this means." Oh. Or, I mean, I know there's a bunch of symbolism, but I too don't really understand the depth of it. Um. And so then I cheated, as I told Sean, I cheated. I started listening to the commentary on the Criterion disc. And the commentary Damn. was amazing. This guy was breaking everything down. And I I said, yeah, so Sean, I cheated. I watched the movie with the commentary on. And so I had this guy explaining everything to me. And so I, I was just like, oh, shit, this is obviously a genius masterwork. I wouldn't have been able to figure it out on my own. I cheated, but still, it, it, it is fucking amazing. I mean, man, the way he was breaking it down, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, in Rotten Tomatoes, Persona has a 91% with the critics. It has a 94% rating with the audience. And that's impressive because it says, for the audience score, that's a composite of over 25,000 reviews. And to get a 94% from the public like that, that's that's pretty good, if you ask me. Um, hey, to be fair, I'm sure the people who are seeing this are people who are seeking it out to rate it. True. So. <laughs> and then the little blurb says, Arguably Bergman's finest film. Persona explores the human condition with intense curiosity, immense technical skill, and beguiling warmth. Warmth. Wow. That's that's a piece I don't I don't grasp. I definitely don't see warmth here. Um, personally, out of the two films we covered, I much preferred The Virgin Spring. I thought that this film had a lot of really beautiful moments, and some of the surrealism had a really kind of pure, kind of primal quality to it. Like it really tapped into stuff that I love, but. A lot of the drama for me just didn't quite connect. I'm sure on repeat viewings that would come together more, but for me, there was a level of kind of um, coldness and unengaging kind of distance that ran throughout the movie for me. And I almost thought that was intentional. I thought kind of at the start telling you, hey, don't forget, this is a film. This is a kind of just a vision by a filmmaker. This is not a genuine story. I thought that was an intentional element of distance, distancing, but maybe on repeat viewings I'd see a different kind of shade to it, but yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. It's definitely one that I will go back to, but between this and The Virgin Spring, I, I definitely preferred The Virgin Spring, so. That makes sense. So that's my opinions on after a first viewing, but. <laughs> um, because I was just reading uh, a little bit on Rotten Tomatoes, it reminded me of something else that I thought was interesting that I read uh, before we had this discussion about this movie in Bergman, which was uh, this writer was saying that um, 
Like, you have to understand what it was like at the time, uh, like when this movie came out. Um, meaning that this writer said, so like this movie came out, Persona, and the critics, the, like the Swedish film critics, or not just Swedish, but just the film critics, the notable ones of the day, um, that it was very normal and common for for Bergman to get like mixed reviews. Like he would simultaneously have reviews that said, oh my God, another masterpiece by Bergman. You know, oh, he's done it. He's topped everything. You know, he would have, he would have those types of reviews and then he would have these other types of reviews at the same time that were like, oh great, another pretentious offering. Like, wow, like <laughs> there's nothing in this movie. There's no, the movie lacks substance. There's no driving arc or you know like oh wow and so apparently this was normal for um bourbon to get very divisive type of reviews and as i was reading about it all of course all i could think about was nolan ryan nolan ryan it's a baseball player from 25 years ago um <laughs> christopher <laughs> nolan wow i guess i'm getting sleepy <laughs> christopher <laughs> nolan and and how you'll get a movie like um Dunkirk or Interstellar or Tenet that people will simultaneously write, oh, you know, another masterwork by Nolan and he does it again. And other people go, yeah, Nolan's over his skis. He's gone too far with the detachable, not detachable, but um, detached protagonist who we can't connect with. And it's just crazy. Um, Wes Anderson gets the same kind of shit too. <laughs> like the crazy praise and then simultaneous like oh ho hum another hipster production or you know whatever <laughs> well that's that's the thing about having a, a genuine artist rather than a focus group the genuine artist will appeal to people who enjoy that particular type of art whereas a focus group is just like what can we do to appeal to everyone so so that makes sense and and maybe nolan maybe it'll be good for nolan that tenant was kind of a failure because maybe he'll more focus on just telling his stories rather than try to appeal to everyone, which I feel like he was tr somewhat trying to do for quite a period of time until maybe Tenet, well, when he kind of broke off and was like, okay, I'm going to do my own thing and really focus on doing what I want to do. Oh, it's, God, it's a whole other interesting conversation I have. Yeah, a conversation for another time, and uh, maybe we'll continue that in the speakeasy. But uh, to end this episode here, thank you very much, Eric, for, for coming on once again, and see you all on the next one. Bye.